Good to see each of you this morning, and it's my privilege to welcome you to the Lord's house on His day, and this being the first day of the week, we gather to worship Him if you're visiting with us or you're attending by way of live stream, glad to have you as well. But uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Even if it's uh, rainy again, was last week. I'm just hoping that we're working up credits toward a really pretty Easter. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's the way it'll work. But uh, I hope you've got your Bibles with you. And I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 18. We began John chapter 18 last week. After having spent a number of weeks in the little book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet. Before that, we were looking at things having to do with Christmas. But for now, on through Easter, we're going to be studying and uh, eventually concluding what's become a two-year-plus study. I want to read this to you, and what we're going to read today is beginning in verse 12 through verse 24. And uh, I'll make some comments here in a moment as to how we're going to go about looking at this because you'll notice there are different headings. The paragraphs are broken into at least four sections between verse 12 and 24. And what you'll see as we read along is that John is skipping between events that are taking place simultaneously. At one point he's talking about what's going on in a room with the high priest and Jesus, and an interrogation. But then outside that building, you've got Peter, a number of men warming themselves by a fire. And he'll skip between those a couple of times. We'll concern ourselves with one today and the other next week. But let me begin reading. This is God's Word, verse 12, John chapter 18. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus And bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 15 Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves together. Peter also with them standing and warming himself. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he'd heard these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? 
Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants, the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. At once the rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this. Your living, breathing, powerful word. We ask that you allow us to see it, to hear it. Open our ears, open our eyes. And Lord, may we understand what you meant for us to know. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for this place in which to worship you. We ask that you give us what's necessary to pay attention, to comprehend, but to change where we need to, to be more like you, less like ourselves. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, as you were able to see, I hope uh, John is flipping between two events, but happening at the same time. Uh, You could look at this as two different episodes. And I know you're probably not unlike so many of us. If you find a good show on TV, uh, you wait on it rather than it waiting on you. In fact, some of you do what some call as you'll binge watch the whole thing because it's that good. Where others of you will check to see how many episodes there are. And you'll kind of ration them out so you can make it last. But you do that because it's good. Well, for two years we've been building up to the climax of this book. This is the good part. It's a sorrowful part. It's the part that gives us the description of what God did on our behalf to purchase our salvation. So, in looking at this, I decided, well, let's, let's read them together and understand how John arranged them. But let's focus on them separately. So today we look at the two paragraphs regarding the trial. Next week, we'll look at the two paragraphs regarding the betrayal. Knowing that John put them together for the purpose of a contrast. We're looking at two totally different methods of behavior. You've got Jesus returning his mistreatment with truth and with dignity and with self-control. Where you've got this abusive group of men who've abused their power to start with and are bending all the rules in order to get done what they think is expedient. And then you've got Peter, who loves his Lord, but loves himself more at a specific point. And these contrasts are are forced upon the reader as they read each play by play. So we'll make two episodes out of this. We'll take our time. And we'll let this word speak as we look closely at its contents. So let me draw your attention to verse 12. The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So we're still in the Garden of Gethsemane. Outside the closed walls of this uh, private garden where Jesus came out, gave himself up. 
Note the order of that. It's the band of soldiers and their captain first and then the officers of the Jews. So it seems to me after Peter drew his sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant, looks like the uh, official trained military known as the Romans and the captain kind of took over from there. They'll lead them back to Caiaphas's place or Annas, wherever they go. There's some speculation on that. And then it seems they go back to the Antonia fortress and get ready for the events of the next day. Um, but note the irony as, as well. They arrested Jesus and bound him. And we talked about what's the likelihood of approaching the actual Son of God to harm him and surviving the process. What's the likelihood of any type of binding that's going to do any good should he decide that he doesn't want to be bound? It's, it's, it's almost, it's almost, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a literary device here known as irony, but we just look at that and we wonder, did they understand what they were doing? And then really, was it those handcuffs or ropes or whatever it was that bound him or was it something else because Jesus not only gave himself up but he's going to go through with this so you could say what truly binds Jesus is what was said in chapter 11 we'll refer back to this John tells us having loved his own who were in the world he loved them until the end it's this amazing love we sing about that is actually binding Jesus where he's determined to finish the work his father had given him to do. So, for the most part, we're going to stick with John here. There are a lot of things that John leaves out, where the other writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are going to give us much more information. I want to read this like John wrote it, and absorb it like John is speaking. We won't spend a lot of time from here on out tracking down the other pieces unless they're key to helping us understand what John is saying, being that we're not alive when he wrote it where everyone else was that would be familiar to them. So only John reports this preliminary interrogation in front of Annas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us about this. But it says that this is where they went first, meaning there's other things that will happen, but the first thing they did was to go to Annas. Jesus is brought before Annas, who's distinguished from Caiaphas, the high priest, in verse 13. See where it says, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So Annas is not Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is father-in-law. Uh, Annas was his father-in-law, and Caiaphas happens to be the high priest that year, uh, which is important and has caused some to trip over it when they knew that the high priest was... High priest for life, not just a year, but there's a reason for that. Actually, these verses, as we're looking at them, at first glance can appear conf confusing. Let me go ahead and show that to you. If you're looking in verse 13, we know who Annas is and we know who Caiaphas is and we know their relationship and we know which one is the high priest. But by the time you get to verse 19... The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. So no name is given, just the title high priest. But then by the time you get to verse 24, Annas, in the same paragraph, sends Jesus to Caiaphas, who's supposed to be the high priest. So are they both in the room? 
Or is there something else going on? Because it's kind of confusing to know. Well, you just said Caiaphas the high priest, but then we're looking at what seems to be Annas because he sends him to the high priest. Unless he's just watching. And maybe the rooms are different and one's for Annas to do his business and one's for Caiaphas to do his. But for the most part, that problem that commentators have a field day with, depending on whether or not they want to take this as literal or whether or not they want to speculate based on other things that happened during the period from extra-biblical sources. I think it's easily sewn up as understandable when you understand the complexities of the priesthood during the first century under Roman rule. Now some of you are thinking, that's why I got up and came to church this morning, to learn about the complexities of the priesthood during the first century under Roman rule. But there's some things that are different about that than when we say, read it in the Old Testament, where God spelled out how the priesthood is supposed to operate. Well, from extra-biblical evidence, we read that Annas was high priest from 6 until 15 A.D. when the man who was replaced by Pilate deposed him. Now, Rome is ruling Palestine now, and they can depose its priests because they're in charge. But you could imagine that not a few Jews would not like that. Why does Rome get to say what we do when God's already told us how we should do it? So you've got a foreign power imposing restrictions, term limits, actually, to make sure that these men don't hold too much power for any one given piece of time. But with that as the way it's working, and according to Numbers 35, where we read clearly that the appointment was for life, for the majority of Jews in this situation, as far as they're concerned, Rome doesn't have anything to say about it. So we know Caiaphas is supposed to be the high priest. That's the office. That's what it says on his door and the plaque on his desk. But everybody knows Annas is the real high priest. So that's likely why they go to him first. No less than five of Annas' sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas held the office at one time or another as Rome traded them out. But you could say that Annas was the patriarch of a high priestly dynasty. And with all those sons in those places, you can assume he, he really controlled what was going on. So it's not surprising that Jesus was first taken to Annas. There's more to come, but that's where it begins. It was likely decided ahead of time as the real power behind Caiaphas or any of the others is Annas. And then you can, you can kind of use in verse 19 when it says the high priest. Even to this day, our former presidents are called Mr. President when they're referred to. Even... President Carter, at 96, I believe, he's still referred to as Mr. President. Same is true here with the priests. Numbers tells us that they were priests for life. Well, when Rome says different, everyone still considers that to be the truth. Look at verse 14. John gives us a second editorial comment right here and reminds us of what was said in chapter 11. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So what he's saying, let me, we've got John open, back up to chapter 11. 
And uh, let me show you what happened. Because this was huge. Caiaphas said a lot more than he knew he was saying. This is verse 45 of Matthew chapter, not Matthew, John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, did what? Well, Lazarus was raised, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come away and take both our place and our nation. So what are they worried about? Their place and their nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Which is a way of saying you're all a bunch of idiots. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We talked about expediency. And how expediency is not necessarily what's right. It's just what works best. It, 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 it's not far off from practicality. If we're going to survive this, this man needs to go. So that's when they decided this. And by the time we get to chapter 18, where we're reading about these mock trials that happen in the middle of the night that aren't right. They're not abiding by the rules. Uh, they're just making things up as they go, it seems. That's because long ago they had decided that this man is better off dead. A good Jesus is a dead Jesus. So that helps us understand how this is playing out. He said far more than he knew. But this explains a lot as far as the absence of a formal legal Jewish deliberation. And then between verse 14 and then where we pick up in 19 is the big meanwhile. Do y'all remember Meanwhile from your shows you watched? I remember it, Batman, they used it all the time. Meanwhile. It's a good way to write. Because the way we live, we have to be in one place at one time. But when you're telling a story, you can tell of multiple things going on at the same time from people who can't be but one place at one time. So right here, he's switching. While this is happening, meanwhile, Peter is denying his Lord. Well, we'll save in that for later. And we're just going to skip to verse 19. So the high priest then questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So the high priest, which is most certainly Annas, questioned Jesus about two matters. Did you count them? Look there in the verse. His disciples and his teaching. That's what he wants to talk about. Now, he's fishing, of course. And you've got to understand, by morning they need something to stick in order for Pilate to do what they want done. So they've got to find something, some type of dirt, something that'll work, that sounds like a formal charge. Uh, there's no catching in this fishing expedition, we'll see. But that's what Annas is doing. And they already know what's going on, they're just trying to put it all together. Um, the first question about his disciples may have had to do with the size of his following more than the twelve and any threat of, of possible conspiracy. Uh, if you'll notice, Jesus does not answer anything regarding his disciples. It's much like his attitude from the garden. You're looking for who? You're looking for me. Ask that twice. They answer twice. It's Jesus of Nazareth we want, so let these men go. And they're not discussed again. 
And they're not going to get anything out of Jesus regarding that first question. The second question seems to give away their true concern regarding the, the idea that their gripe against Jesus is theological. It always was. Which is important because by the time he gets to Pilate, they've changed their tune. It's, it's all political. Doesn't matter. Whichever gets him dead. Their problem's theological. He says he's the son of God. But they're going to tell Rome, hey, he thinks he's more important than Caesar. So they're going to twist and bob and weave back and forth. But at the bottom of their concern was who Jesus claimed himself to be, theological or political. They've got to formulate a charge. Jesus answers in verse 20. Look at this. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, public places, where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Verse 21, second argument. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me. What I said to them. They know what I said. So let's back up and look at these proceedings, the questions that have been asked and the way Jesus answers them. Um, in a formal which this is likely not, but in a formal Jewish hearing, the case had to rest on the weight of the testimonies, the witnesses brought in to corroborate evidence or to destroy it. That's the way it works in our understanding of jurisprudence, right? You've probably watched enough Law and Order or Matlock or... Uh, Perry Mason or Murder She Wrote not Judge Judy though I hate to break it to you she, she used to be a real judge but she's not now and that's not a real court even though at the beginning of the show these are real people these are real cases real decision all that's true but it's called uh, arbitration and that's where one person makes a decision but both parties before they go in agree that that person gets to make the call and uh, the producers of that show, just by the way, in case you wondered, um, kind of chase around small claims court stories, like ambulance tracer, chasers trying to find one that would be fun to watch. And they call them up and they say, you'll have to waive your right to a real courtroom trial, but we're going to pay your fees based on this arbitrator, but you both have to agree that that's the terms. And it kind of serves a good purpose in how things are done, besides entertainment on TV. Uh, arbitration's quicker. It's usually cheaper. It can sidestep in certain ways, state and federal law. It can be binding or not binding and be withheld in court. Uh, it can actually bend the rules of evidence in some way. But at the bottom of it, two people, two parties agreed that this person gets to say. This is not even what Jesus has here. Because he doesn't get to agree on the terms of how it's decided. He just stands there while they do what they want as powerful men who have an agenda. So let's look at how it works. Proper procedure was to interrogate the witnesses, not the defendant. They're interrogating the defendant, and there are no witnesses. 
The accused would not be called upon to incriminate himself. All this is found in the Old Testament. In fact, the witnesses for the defendant were supposed to be heard before the witnesses against the defendant. So if, and that's a big if right here, this interrogation was an informal procedure before the high priest emeritus will give him that, and not before the Sanhedrin who are not present, then Annas may not have seen himself at all bound by the letter of the law. I think that's what's going on. So let's go back and look at what Jesus said to what is clearly an informal interrogation with no worries as to the way things are supposed to be done. Such as it is. Let's look at how Jesus responds and determine whether or not he cares about the letter or the spirit of the law. Jesus challenges their questions. And with regard to both the letter and the spirit of the law, and we could talk about those, I think that's sufficient. His words have bite whether the legal requirements of a fair trial were technically in force or not. Listen to how he compares himself in challenge to the way they're doing their business. He says, I have spoken openly to the world in public places like the temple and the sanctuary or the synagogue, rather. Now, we know that he talked privately to his disciples, right? That, that doesn't mean that he had a private agenda that, that, that was sinister and had plotted to overthrow uh, the high priest and the Sanhedrin in Rome. But publicly he's had other things to say. That, that doesn't preclude such a thing. Because we know better than that. But then he says, I have said nothing in secret. The whole thing was secret with Annas and these other men. Nobody was there. There were no witnesses. So there's the first huge contrast that he puts between them. Public places, light of day, opposed in secret under the cover of darkness. In other words, his teaching was public property, where theirs was strictly off limits. So it's a declaration of contrasts. And then secondly, he says, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me. It's not like a witness would be a tough thing to find. You could get a lot of them. Jesus knows there's a few of them hanging outside at a fire. John's inside the room, incognito as it were. I have many witnesses, go find some. So it shouldn't surprise us when we see in verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Because basically he had said, in as many words, this is a sham and you're all off base. So some minor official, we don't have his credentials, was quick to check Jesus. The words that are described here refer to a sharp blow with the flat of the hand. So it could be an open palm or a backhand, which some would argue hurts worse. But Jesus answered, he doesn't back down. If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? So if this is contempt of court, then state the charges 
Show me how I'm wrong. But if it's right, I'm an uncondemned man. And you've carried out at least a portion of a sentence with assault, which is abuse. Now, at this point, it's, it's over. <laughs> and Annas is no dummy. So we read he sends him straight to Caiaphas. It's quite clear that these men are uh, unable to win by fair play. So they're perfectly happy resorting to foul play. And after Jesus has said what he said, this is a dead end. His response, sometimes I thought I'd mention this just so you've got knowledge of other places in Scripture and what some people like to use to compare passages to passages. Sometimes what Jesus did here is compared to what the Apostle Paul did in a similar situation where he too challenges a high priest. If you want to jot this down, it's Acts 23. And uh, I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. Well, that was enough for them to hear. And the high priest Ananias, different guy, not Annas. This is Ananias. Commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? Whitewashed wall was, was a way of saying you're a broken down, busted up, dirty old wall that's been daubed with, with putty and spackle and then washed over with white paint. You're not who you think you are. He continues, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? He has a point. But those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And then there seems to be somewhat of a pause here because Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And most of the commentators seem to believe that uh, it was his eyesight that was his problem. How in the world could you not know? There's something going on. Why would he quote the scripture he holds so dear as being something to <laughs> be his get out of jail card for hap not happening to understand who the high priest was? That's what happened there. He's basically a whitewashed wall. You know, if this was a shop class, you know, an auto shop, you bondoed bumper. You know, there's something fake behind there. So he thinks he's got a case, but... Clearly, he apologizes knowing he was out of line because he knew it was a violation of Scripture. So this is a bad comparison with what Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't call anyone any names. And he had nothing to apologize for because his understanding of the law was, was perfection. So the comparison is not a good comparison. And then just to make sure we cover all the bases, there are those who say, well, Jesus didn't turn the other cheek. They forget that business of the cross the next morning if they're worried about turning the other cheek. Verse 24, Anna sent, them, sent him bound to Caiaphas. 
the high priest. John doesn't give us that. We've got it from other gospel writers. But it's over. Annas quickly recognizes that he will get nowhere with this man. Sends him to Caiaphas. Because before Jesus is brought before Pilate, the legal accusation will need to come from the sitting high priest in his capacity as the chairman of the Sanhedrin. That'd be Caiaphas, even though Annas calls the shots. So what have we got here? What do we do with this? I think it's an adequate once-over of the legal proceedings, formal or informal. The breaking or twisting or just negligence of the rules that might have been jettisoned because they intended it to be informal. But you've got Jesus who seems to think that they're important no matter what the situation is. Fair is fair. Truth is true. Dignity is dignity. And before it's all over, he's sent up the chain to one who's in charge. So what we've got is a picture of contrast. If you want to make notes, that's, that's the, the function of these paragraphs, as we've read them, that John's painting these pictures of. You've got rulers who've abused their power. That's obvious. A priesthood that's more important to them, that is Annas at least, than the God himself who's standing in front of them. Now they don't understand him as such, but John wants us to look at it as such, okay? You've got God standing in front of them being tried not even by the rules he gave them to try such matters among humans. And because they care so much about that priesthood and the power that came along with it, to get to the thing that they think is most important, they ignore the things that the God gave them. They think that this office is sacred. They're set apart. They have authority. They have power to do these things, not knowing that every bit of that authority and power was given to them by the God they're trying Does that make sense? They don't know the trouble that they're in. And it'd be real easy to look at this and say, you know, we don't either. No, it would be easy for us to say, you know, we know better. But the truth is we don't. And Peter's the same way out in the garden. He, thinking that he's close to Jesus, forgets the fact that it's Jesus whom he's denying by saving his own hide. We'll look at that next week. But his betrayal has more in common actually with these rulers than with Jesus inside, their master that they followed for three years. So is there a way that we could compare ourselves to this? Well, yeah, you might have to do some stretching. And I'm always cautious in doing so. You know, there's a real temptation sometimes when you find an angle to just go off on that rabbit trail and then take all the the compliments at the end. Boy, that 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 preached today. You know, we could talk about how you know, all the good things that God has given us sometimes actually put us in a position to feel pretty special ourselves and jettison all the guardrails that he gave us to keep us from ruining our lives which we're prone to do because of the sin within our own hearts we could go on and on about that kind of stuff 
and it really gets ugly when we start using the, the, the positions we have as parents or preachers to lower the boom on certain people. When the beam coming out of our eyes is so huge that any idiot could see it. But I think it's, it's good enough just to look at the contrast here. We might not find ourselves identifying with this priesthood who's way off base. But boy, don't we identify with Peter. Who's going to do what we would probably have done. We like him because we identify with him. We'll take a closer look at that next week. But here's what I want to leave you with. And you can write this down and it will work for us next week just as it works for us today. This is not a go thou and do likewise passage. And I probably wouldn't have gotten good marks in preaching class for giving you no alliterated points to just chart the steps that we took. You know, you could do that. But I don't sit down with a notepad and write out an outline with every show or book I watch. Sometimes I just drink it all in and maybe later I'll organize it. I think that's appropriate today. Might have some professors rolling over in graves. I'm not sure. But this is not a go thou and do likewise as much as this is a behold your God passage. I think that's what John is trying to say. Look at these men and how they've thrown away the rules God gave them. Look at this guy who's taken his eyes off Christ and he's denying his Lord. But look at their Savior who, who could have just been silent and let them all sit in ignorance. But he's going to, in dignity and self-control, speak up for the truth. Now there's Herod he won't say a word to because Herod doesn't deserve it. There's Pilate who's going to ask him about truth. He's going to talk about that's the reason why he's here, to bear witness to the truth. But this Jesus that we read about in chapter 13, having loved his own within the world, loved them until the end. This is the end. This is right after the garden where he's sweating great drops of blood, asking if there's any other way that this cup can pass. But nevertheless, not my will but yours. And then to tell Peter after he's cut off the man's ear, should I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In the middle of all this pressure that would have killed any one of us, he's still obeying the rules. And sometimes we think the business of the cross is just to wipe away all our sins that need to be forgiven. That's only half of it. The other half of the cross was him being obedient in all the ways that we weren't. Faithful in all the ways that we failed. There's a massive contrast. This is behold your king, your God. Pilate's going to say, behold the man. And, and, and most of them don't know anything as to what he's saying or what they're supposed to actually be looking at. So next week we'll look at this a little closer. But behind the behold your God, if you wrote that down, write down... We become what we behold. 
It's not a lot different than saying you are what you eat or you are what you think. It's a more beautiful way. You are what you behold. That's the problem of these men. They behold their power. Peter beholds his safety at one moment. But if you chart the trajectory of these these men, these rulers, they become what they behold. If you chart the trajectory of Peter, you find out he becomes what he beholds. This is the guy at the end will say, you know what? If you're going to crucify me, would you do it upside down? Not to insult the one that died in my place. You become what you behold. And it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And you feel like you do more wrong than you do right. It's a hymn we're going to sing here in a moment. It talks about sometimes failing. That's the only part I don't like about the song. Because I don't feel like that fits me. I fail all the time. Um, almost as if there's no redeeming quality. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. The more you look at Jesus, the more awful you know your sin And the more in need you are of a Savior. So with that said, beholding our God, we hope to become what we behold. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for John having written down things that were not said elsewhere. To see how you answered your mistreatment. Lord we may feel like we've been mistreated this past year really. Inconvenienced is more like it. Or harmed by natural evil. Lord you went through hell for us. The least we can do is stand and behold our God. Make us more like you. We thank you for this time in church. We thank you for what the world would consider the foolishness of sitting down in pews, dressed up in clothes we don't wear the rest of the week. While somebody stands and talks. Hoping to hear nothing from him but everything from the word of God. Lord, speak to our hearts. Change us. Make us who we need to be. And give us the courage to tell someone about it. We thank you for these things and we ask it all in your name. Amen.